Hello and welcome to the podcast Shaped By. Shaped By is an interview series brought to you by Murray Edwards College, Newhawk at the University of Cambridge. In each episode, we will interview a member of our alumni exploring the experiences which will shape them to become the women they are today. This series is produced by Molly Gibson, me, Lexi Hoskins and myself, Eliza Gagelli. For the second episode of Shape By, we're joined by Angie Hobbs, Professor of Public Understanding of Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Angie graduated from Murray Edwards College Newhall with a BA in Classics in 1983 and a PhD in Ancient Philosophy in 1989. She's since held academic positions at the universities of Cambridge, Warwick and Sheffield. And alongside this, she's published widely. She contributes regularly to radio and TV shows. And she sits on numerous boards and committees, including as a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. For full transparency, we've had numerous technical difficulties with Angie's podcast. So this is actually the second time she's very generously given up her time to join us. And um, as I know, you're incredibly busy between your academic career, media commitments and writing. So thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It's a really great pleasure and honour to be here. Oh, well, I mean, I think in our previous conversations, we've talked a lot about your anecdotes, and I know you have so many of them. Maybe let's rewind all the way back to your childhood in the Surrey Hills, if you could tell us a bit about that. It was a gorgeous, uh, idyllic country childhood in many ways. I was playing in bluebell woods and lying in buttercup fields and cycling along country lanes, foaming with cow parsley and blossom. It was, you know, that was beautiful. Um As with everybody's life, there was shade as well as light. I had a very, very seriously mentally and physically disabled sister, uh, beautiful, uh, a beautiful soul, very much loved, but in in some ways uh, her abilities were less than a one day old baby. So she really was profoundly disabled. And I grew up always knowing that she could die at any time. So Though it wasn't at all a morbid childhood, it was a very happy, joyous childhood. But I always have had that strong sense of the fragility and and finitude of life and the need to live each day to the full and and crack on and embrace life. So it it was an unusual childhood in that respect. But on the whole, just a a glorious country childhood. And speaking about your sister, I know that obviously you had to deal with grief at a very young age. Um, I was really sorry to hear that. And um, also that your sister, you said, helped you to get into Murray Edwards College Newhall. Yes, well, in indirectly, I, I've always liked to think so. I mean, you may find this a really sentimental take, but it's my take. So she died when she was 15 and I was 11. And... I then I got a place at another university to read English, but then I was loving Latin more and more in the sixth form. And I decided to the great surprise of my sixth form college that I wanted to stay on for an extra term, uh, as you did in those days for Oxbridge and take the Oxbridge exams in in, in a seventh term after A-levels for classics, not for English. And I'd been learning ancient Greek for about six weeks. (laughs) And I was up against all these uh, 
people who've been doing it since they were eight years old at prep school. And I did some terrible, terrible papers. Uh, not surprisingly, I remember a, a Greek translation paper. I had no idea what was going on. I, I decided I'd better write something. I just made up a battle scene. Then near the end of the piece we had to translate, I saw a word which I thought, uh, as it turns out correctly, was the word for dolphin. <laughs> so I realised I was nowhere near a battlefield. Indeed, I wasn't. <laughs> so it was just terrible. Anyway, so I did these awful papers and I went for my interview and I didn't get into uh, Newnham, which I'd put down as my first choice college. Uh, quite wrongly, I'm so, so happy that I ended up at uh, Murray Edwards uh, uh, College Newhall. Um, so no regrets whatsoever about that. But they took me out of the pool and I went out for an interview over the Christmas period. And the classics, the, the excellent but rather formidable classics tutor of the time, as I went into her room, she said, well, obviously you're terrible at ancient Greek. And she said, it, it looks like your Latin isn't much better. And I I got quite cross and I said, my Latin's quite good, actually. Give me anything to translate right now and I'll, I'll have a go at translating it. And she just took down some Cicero from the, the shelves and I, I did manage to translate that. But still, I think it was very much in the balance whether I was going to be taken in by Newhall. And then I was interviewed by the then president, uh, Dame Rosemary Murray, who, of course, had founded the college. And she asked me what I was doing in my year off. And I said, well, I'm a, a teacher's assistant at a school for very profoundly mentally handicapped children. And she said, oh, aren't you, are you, are you comfortable with that? Do, do you find that difficult? And I said, no, no, it's, I grew up with a very handicapped sister and um, I feel completely relaxed around disabled people. I'm not, I don't feel at all awkward or embarrassed. And it, I didn't know, but she had a very deep interest in um, getting better provision for particularly the mentally disabled. I didn't know that was one of her, her great passions in life. Anyway, we talked about that. And I've always felt that it was Dame Rosemary Murray in particular who got me into uh, what was then Newhall. And, and that the, what swung it was the fact that I was working in this school and she, she liked that. And indirectly, I think my beautiful sister somehow managed to help me get into what was their new hall. So, okay, you may think that's completely uh, sentimental, but that's how it felt to me. No, no, no. I think it's such a lovely and profound way to think about your sister's legacy. Um, and I also think it's so interesting that when you were in the interview with Rosemary, you actually challenged her when she said when she said you couldn't do something very well. And I think a lot of people would sit there and agree um, with your Latin. No, that no, oh no, that was the classics tutor who uh, told me. I, I, she was the classics tutor who'd said, "Well, it looks like your Latin isn't much better," and I was just quite cross about that because <laughs> I mean, in those days, my Latin was you know, quite good. And yeah. yes, I did challenge her, which I think probably surprised her. But anyway, it, I, it's interesting because you also have, from what I hear of your school days, uh, you've got quite a history of challenging um, kind of <laughs> 
I guess, authority in a way. And uh, that's obviously something that's got you to where you are today. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your school days. You weren't quite the goody two shoes that you might associate with kind of an Oxbridge <laughs> candidate. Oh, absolutely. So, well, I, I went to four schools and I loved the first and the last of them. So I had a idyllic um, nursery school, which was in a, a little shed, really, or a little building in a walled garden in a big house in a, a local village. It was just beautiful. You walked through all these flowers and fruits and to get to the little school. And then I really enjoyed my sixth form college um, at the end of it. But in between, in between, I went to a private prep school and a private girls boarding school um, for what was then O-levels. And at both schools, I had some good teachers and I'm very grateful to them. And at both schools, I made some uh, good friendships with people who are still my friends. So I'm very appreciative of that. However, however, both schools um, were absolutely training us or trying to train us to be Christian young ladies with the accent on the ladyhood even more than the Christianity, Christian young ladies who would be good wives to successful men. That was the goal. And that was just so not me. I did not fit in at all. And though I never tried to be naughty, as far as I remember, I kept getting into trouble. And there was one particular <laughs> incident at my boarding school. So I would have been about 14, I suppose. And it was the needlework class. And I hated needlework. I was just useless at it and it bored me. I'm not proud of that. I wish I could so. I admire people who can, but anyway, it wasn't for me. And happily for me, there were too many of us to fit into the needlework room. So I volunteered to go and sit in the room next door, which was the cookery room. So I would be there all on my own all year. And I never did any needlework. I did my Latin homework, which I much preferred. And then at the in the summer term, um, we were told that we all had, to, and this is just so bizarre, you can't hardly believe it's true, uh, but this is the mid-70s for you. We were told that we would have to take part in a fashion parade on the school's foundation day and walk down an aisle in the main marquee in front of all the parents these young teenage girls and these little skimpy diaphanous nighties that we'd made. I mean, it beggars belief that it was regarded as acceptable, but that's the 1970s for you. Anyway, of course, I didn't have a nightie. I hadn't sewn anything. And I got into great trouble for that. And I was sent to the deputy headmistress, who I think was genuinely concerned for me. And she said, well, the sewing teacher has also said she's not prepared to teach you cookery either. And you, you're not going to be able to do, I, I can't remember what it was, I can't remember what it was called. I think domestic science O-level, something like that. Anyway, you can't do that. You're going to have to go into the Latin and German uh, stream instead, which is what I wanted to do anyway. So it wasn't at all a punishment for me. And then she said, you are going to be leaving the school unable to 
sew or cook. How will you ever find a husband? <laughs> she was really worried. And I said, and I didn't mean to be rude. I can now see it was rude. I didn't mean to be rude. I said, well, I intend to marry a man who can sew. <laughs> and I got, in, I got into huge trouble. Um, now, in fact, as it happens, I never have got married. So she was clearly right. Clearly, if I'd had good sewing skills, I would have had husbands uh, queuing up, queuing up. Anyway, it was <laughs> it was very, very funny, but it just shows even in um, since, you know, I suppose people might think the 1970s is a very long time ago. It doesn't seem that long ago to me, but it was a different world. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I finally I left that school and went to what was actually then still a, a boys grammar school in Horsham in Sussex, which was in the process of turning into a sixth form college. I think there were over 600 boys and about 20 girls, as I remember. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I had a fabulous time there and mm -hmm. I felt much more at home. Though they were still surprised when I said I wanted to try for Oxbridge. I think I was probably, I'd done fine in my O-levels and things, but I think I was probably a bit of a late developer. And my parents didn't want me to go to university at all. So I had to fight for that. Did you? Could you tell us a bit about that? Why were your parents against you going to university? Yes, well, my mother thought that they were dens of iniquity. Though, in fact, um, there was a backstory in that she was a very clever woman, but for uh, family reasons, she'd not been able to even do the equivalent of A-levels. Uh, so um, uh, who, there was a complicated story there. But anyway, she she thought that universities were sort of fostered vice um, and my father wanted me to go to drama school and it's true that I did do a lot of acting at school and indeed at university but I, I fought again I'm a great believer in writing your own scripts in life and not following the scripts that other people have written for you so I mm. did apply for Oxbridge and I to everybody's surprise I did get in and uh, had this wonderful time at Murray Edwards College New. And you are really someone who's then rebelled against gender norms throughout your childhood throughout your teens. How did you find that your kind of attitude towards life in that sense how how did that fit into your life at Murray Edwards College Newhall? I never thought of myself as rebelling. I just did my own thing. I, it just didn't occur to me not to live my own life. And I think other people saw that as rebellion. It it wasn't something. It wasn't how I saw it. But yes, I I completely agree. Other people saw it as rebellious. Um, well, at at Cambridge, um, I think there were four men to one woman when I was there. So it was a different experience. Mm. Uh, but I made some fabulous friends, both male and female. I didn't, I didn't feel uh, that gender was particularly an issue once I got to Cambridge. And but did you feel when you were at Cambridge that you were able to live your life how you wanted to? 
I, oh, I did, yes, because I did work very hard, but I played very hard as well. I went to lots of parties. Um, I acted a lot, including I was lucky enough to be given the lead part in the Cambridge Greek play. I remember I had to learn, I think, over 650 lines of ancient Greek, which I couldn't do now. I can remember the <laughs> opening. Yeah, I can remember the opening lines, but that's about it. And I, I did some other plays as well. I used to speak quite regularly at the union, not for any one particular political party. My political awakening came after Cambridge when I was living in Naples. Um, but I spoke on all sorts of uh, subjects. I think I was even uh, captain of the Murray Edwards College Newhall Athletics team mm. in my first year. I don't think we were very good, but I've, I've always loved running and I still uh, even at my advanced age, I still jog every other day, uh, quite slowly these days, but I still do it. <laughs> and so I, I lived a really, really full life. And and I and not just, I, I also went to sort of every play I could, both put on by the students and at the Cambridge Arts Theatre. Um, I spent a lot of time in what was then the Cambridge Arts Cinema. I don't know if that still exists. And I, I went to hear all these brilliant visiting speakers, even, even from, you know, they didn't have to be in my faculty or um, if a, a well-known speaker was in town, I would go to listen to them. So I packed in a huge amount. Oh, it was brilliant. I mean, I did get exhausted at times, but it was brilliant. And You've also said while you're at college, you read two books and a play which had a profound impact on your life. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about those. Oh, yes. Well, I've, I've always been a voracious reader. And yes, there were three works that I read around this time, which had a really profound impact on me. One was reading Patrick Lee Fermer's autobiography, A Time of Gifts, about the extraordinary walk he undertook, aged, I think, only 18 or so in the early 1930s from London to what is now Istanbul. Um, and then there's a collection of short stories by one of my very favourite short story writers, Grace Paley. And the collection is called Enormous Changes at the Last Minute. And both those works taught me that you need to be bold and embrace life and live life to the full and that life is this endlessly surprising adventure. And I've always seen life like that and I still do. And the third, I would say, was Plato's Symposium, which is, an, for those who don't know it, it's the most beautiful, moving, profound, witty dialogue about the nature of erotic love, which I highly recommend to everybody, whether you're in, interested or think you're interested in ancient Greek philosophy or not. When I arrived at Cambridge, I was very torn between philosophy and literature. Um, I'd always um, enjoyed fiction writing. I'd always written short stories. I still do. I have drawfuls of them, which I must find the courage to try to get published someday. Um, and then since uh, my teens and particularly since my A-levels, I'd started becoming really interested in philosophy. Uh, we'd studied Lucretius's um, on the nature of things for A-level uh, about Epicurean philosophy. And I'd got very involved in the debate about free will and determinism. So I was really torn. 
And then I discovered Plato. And it, Plato was a revelation because he's a great writer as well as a great philosopher. And he, his works are in dialogue form and he doesn't appear um, as a character in his own dialogues. He's always off stage. And I realized I didn't have to choose. Um, here was a writer who could nourish my love of both philosophy and literature. And that was wonderful. I think, in fact, I did read the symposium, but I also, I think I heard it on the radio at about the same time. I think it was dramatized as well. And I was just entranced. And how did those texts inform your next move after when you graduated in 1993? <laughs> oh, well, yes. Well, I had I, I had I had a year or so of being both ill and injured and in and out of hospital and getting very bored with hospitals. And I the end of that, or I well, nearly the end, I, it took me several years to get fully better. But when I was well enough to to be out up and about. I trained to teach English as a foreign language and was wondering what city to go and work in. And everybody said, well, you mustn't go to Naples. It's so dangerous. So I thought, that's the place for me. I was so bored of hospital <laughs> corridors and things. I thought, danger, that sounds great. And off I went to Naples. And that was my year of living dangerously. It really was dangerous in the mid-1980s because the local... Camorra were at war with the Sicilian mafia and it was there were a lot of gun battles it was extraordinary but I fell in love with the city I'd always loved Italy ever since my first visit there when I was five but Naples I fell in love with the city and I made most amazing friendships and I mean two things in particular really stand out one is that I and my two housemates, flatmates, um, with whom I'm still friends, uh, we got to know a group of conservators and art restorers, mainly Neapolitan, but also from all over Europe. And they quite literally unlocked doors into hidden parts of Naples, churches and cloisters that were under restoration and closed to the public. And that was the most extraordinary way to be introduced to the city. And also it changed me politically, as it turned out forever, because I'd grown up um, in a very, uh, I mean, not a wealthy household, but Oh, it was a privileged background, and I didn't know that. Um, in that we we weren't rich, but we had an, enough to eat. We we were materially okay. Um, and my parents, lovely, lovely, kind people, were I guess one nation conservatives, uh, probably Disraeli kind of mid nineteenth century conservatives. Um, they probably wouldn't recognise the current. <laughs> party if they saw it. Anyway, they had brought me up to believe that if you worked hard and you had some talents, you would get on. That's all you needed. Some gifts and a capacity for hard work and perseverance. And I got to Naples and realised that just wasn't true, that we, I saw all these extraordinarily gifted incredibly hardworking people who were absolutely constrained by their circumstances. And I realised that we all need opportunities and we all need support. And I've never 
changed my view on that. So politically and socially, it really changed me. But also it was just such fun, you know, riding on the back of motorbikes under the night stars <laughs> and eating wild strawberry ice cream in the back streets of Spacanapoli and taking boats at the weekend out to Capri or Ischia or Procida. I mean, wow. I mean, and, uh, oh, I mean, you know, and Pistum and Herculaneum and uh, Pompeii were all within striking distance. It was the most extraordinary year. So what and, made you return? Well, I know. I mean, there I was. <laughs> there I was having a whale of a time and, you know, you felt that anything could happen at any moment and it usually did. However... I did find I was missing philosophy and again, particularly Plato. And in these days, in those days, of course, no internet, you couldn't just turn on a screen and read stuff online. I would go off to the Biblioteca Nazionale and go to the Greek, ancient Greek section and read Plato in my spare time. And I realized that there was and un there was unfinished business there. And then I heard from my old director of studies at uh, Murray Edwards College Newhall, uh, the inspirational M.M. McCabe, absolutely wonderful, wonderful teacher of ancient philosophy, to whom I am forever indebted. And she contacted me to say that this very famous professor of uh, ancient Greek philosophy, Miles Berniate, who had said he wasn't taking on any more graduate students, had said he would take me on if I came back to study for a PhD with him. And I thought I would be crazy to turn down that opportunity. It would be, that was another kind of adventure, a, a different kind of intellectual adventure. And I remember, I mean, don't try this at home. Do not follow my <laughs> example here. But in those days, it was all much less professional. Nowadays, people wanting to do a PhD have to go through masses of paperwork and be terribly professional. I wasn't remotely professional. I remember being probably having had a few glasses of wine and it was four in the morning and filling in my British Academy application form at four in the morning. I remember even it had a bit of tomato sauce on it <laughs> and sending it with a friend who was staying, who was traveling, flying back to England the next day. And he'd said he would post it for me. It was that casual. But anyway, I did get a, a grant and I got the place and I came back to take up um, my PhD place uh, and back to uh, what was then Newhall. Yeah. Uh, to, to study. So yes, from one adventure to the next. How was your second stint at um, Murray Edwards College Newhall? Oh, well, again, um, I, mean, I, I didn't have so much physically to do with the college because I always lived out. I lived all over the place, um, including out in Shelford and, and so on, though I did make really good friends amongst the other graduates. And as ever, I found it a very supportive and nurturing and accepting place where you could really be yourself. Um, no, I mean, it, it was very, it was a very intense period because as well as doing my PhD, I taught, I think, in about 10 different colleges simultaneously to earn more money. I didn't just uh, teach ancient Greek 
philosophy. I taught Greek and literature. I taught Latin and Greek translation. I think I also taught some Latin prose composition. So I was sort of biking all over the place and really busy. And I, I learned academic German and so on. However, <laughs> I was determined that I should do something each week, which was nothing to do with the university. And I think it's incredibly important to get out of one's bubbles and meet people from completely different uh, spheres. So I went down Mill Road, which in those days was a centre for alternative living. And I went to what was then called the Women's Resource Centre. And I was going to learn car maintenance because I thought it's ridiculous. I drive and I can barely do a spark plug. This is ridiculous. I must go and sign on for a course in car maintenance. But the courses were listed alphabetically. And my eye ran down below C and just shortly below it, E, Egyptian dance. I thought, wow, that sounds fun. So I, I signed up for that instead and I took it quite seriously. I had costumes made and um, it was just brilliant. I met all these women, fabulous women who had nothing to do with the university. And it was proper Egyptian dance, rakshaki, uh, rather than belly dancing. Um, in fact, if anything, even more sensual and erotic, uh, it was because it's pelvis and hips rather than your belly. And I just loved that and did extra courses at the weekend. I, rem I remember we did African drumming and things. Oh, it was brilliant. So, yes, so I was there. I was still having an adventure and living life to the full. I mean, you sound like you're someone who's always been able to um, fit in numerous commitments, however intense your day job is, um, because I know that after you graduated, you went on, in, and that was in 1989, and you went on to hold positions at Christ College Cambridge, the University of Warwick, and the University of Sheffield. But alongside this, you've always managed to take up other kind of roles I guess whether it be author or um radio um I, d I don't know what you'd call it almost like were you a radio producer or is it just that you because I know that you did a series and you're often on radio four you're often on tv so what drove you to do that <laughs> oh well now that's that's a very interesting story I think because I think it might be helpful for others. I'd done a little bit of radio um, on Radio 4 and Radio 3 in the 1990s, but what really changed was in the, I don't know, it was about 2000, 2001, about then. And it was a very difficult few years of my life. I'd had my adored daughter in 1999, and I I've always just loved motherhood, the best thing that's ever happened to me. But when she was one, her father, who was and still is a very devoted and dedicated father, but uh, he and I separated and he went back to live in Canada. And I was on my own and my father was dead and my mother was starting to get ill and I had very little money. And I was at Warwick University at the time. And the situation in the department and the faculty, for various reasons, was not an easy situation. And my close friends 
most of them were a long way away from Warwick. So I, I, and I couldn't afford to pay for much support. And it was a very difficult and often quite lonely few years uh, looking after my you know, baby and toddler on her own. And I, there was one afternoon, it was a winter afternoon, and I was pushing her buggy through Leamington Spa. And it was very grey and cold and bleak. And I realised I was falling into quite a low mental state. And I thought, this is no good. I want my daughter to grow up seeing a happy mother, um, a mother who's flourishing. I don't want her to see an exhausted, sad woman who feels her life is a failure. And I thought, I've got to do something radical to change this. And I promised myself, pushing the buggy, and I promised her that I would accept the next interesting proposition that came along, no matter how terrified I was. And this is the extraordinary thing. It was either 24 or possibly 48 hours later, but really soon after making that promise to myself and her, I got a call from Radio 4's In Our Time to make a programme, I think, on love. And though I was completely terrified, and we can maybe talk about how I learned to deal with my nerves later, but I was completely terrified. But I remembered my promise to myself and my daughter, and I said yes. And that was the start of what's turned out to be over 200 radio programs, um, quite often writing the scripts as well. So sometimes I'm an interviewee, but sometimes I'm a presenter and writer of them. Um, over 20 TV programs, numerous videos and podcasts, public talks, traveling all over the world, speaking at the World Economic Forum at Davos, uh, having a one-to-one with a European queen, whom I will not name, um, speaking at the United States Air Force Training Academy in Colorado. I mean, the most extraordinary adventures followed from that. And it all started really that moment of feeling utterly bleak on that winter's afternoon and thinking, I've got to change this. I have got, you know, If things aren't working, you have to change the status quo and you have to be bold and radical, even though I was terrified. And that really links back to the um, text that you were talking about earlier that obviously really informed the whole. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Great Grace Paley and warmest changes at the last minute and and, and Patrick Lee Fermer, Time of Gifts. Yes. I mean, I I wasn't thinking that in that moment. I wasn't (laughs) thinking, oh, I must follow Grace Paley and Patrick Lee Fermer, but you're absolutely right. Those those works really did inform my approach to life. And you just have to take the plunge sometimes. And, and what advice would you give for anyone who is scared of taking that plunge, I guess? Like you're saying you would you would tell us a bit about how you deal with nerves and how you deal with kind of taking that leap into the unknown, as it were. Oh, well, I mean, I was so nervous before that first in our time that <laughs> I remember one of the assistants followed me to the loo because she they were scared I was going to run away down the <laughs> stairs. Um, well, I would say two things. One is that 
I learned not to be scared of feeling nervous because though I was terrified beforehand and that I went on being terrified for a long time and I still get adrenaline, I still get a bit of nerves, but I have learned that when the green light goes, I am able to talk mm -hmm. and I, I don't completely dry up and I don't um, suddenly start, I don't know, speaking Finnish, um, which is <laughs> fabulous if you are Finnish. That's a great thing to do. But if you're English and wanting to speak English, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be able to do it. And when I learned that no matter how sick with nerves I felt beforehand, it was okay when the green light went on, I could perform. Then I learned to be less scared of feeling nervous. And of course, if you become less scared of feeling nervous, you become less nervous. Yeah. Uh, so it's a virtuous circle. So I became less frightened of feeling nervous. I also learned, and I wish I had learned this earlier, um, that you don't have to wait to feel completely confident in life to do things. I, I Even now, I never feel completely confident. You just have to be able to act it because what people want is somebody who appears relaxed and friendly and enthusiastic. They don't, people are embarrassed and feel awkward if you're absolutely visibly, audibly petrified with nerves. But you don't have to feel confident, you just have to be able to act it. And I remembered, and I, I passed this on partly in jest, but only partly in jest, because I also partly mean it. Some advice I'd read in a, a magazine in the 19, I think probably in the 1970s, a magazine called Cosmopolitan. I don't know whether it still exists. Um, in those days, in the 1970s, it was quite a campaigning magazine. And I remember reading an article about how to deal with nerves. And it said, repeat this mantra to yourself before you go in. Um, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you're here. I know that I know. And I have found that a really good thing to repeat to myself. I don't mean that in an arrogant or presumptuous kind of way. I don't think that the bar for knowledge is as high as Socrates would place it. I just mean that have the confidence that you know about your subject mm. and believe in yourself and be really pleased to be there. Mm. Pleased to be communicating a subject that you love to this particular audience. You want to be there. You love your subject. You want to communicate it. And that kind of enthusiasm is the main thing you need to transmit. Because mm. um, if you're not enthusiastic about your subject, why, why would you expect anybody else to be? Mm. And that's the most important thing. And if you can transmit that, then, you know, the odd slip really doesn't matter that you know a tiny grammatical slip it really doesn't matter mm. um so yes the combination of cosmopolitan's mantra mm. and learning that i could feel terribly nervous and yet still survive and perform mm. that combination meant that even though i still feel nerves a bit um and in fact i'd be worried if i didn't because i think you need a bit of adrenaline and you don't want to get complacent or smug I think that would kill what you do. Um, but that has helped me over the years. I do wish I had realised earlier that you don't have to wait in life to feel deep inner confidence. You just have to be able to act it a bit. <laughs> <laughs>
as someone who is what I would say and I'm sure anyone else would say is you've been very successful what do you define as success that well it's so interesting I mean I don't think of myself as particularly successful um maybe maybe nobody does I don't know uh but I mean I, I I care about things and I'm really pleased that some of them have turned out you know uh well, I define success actually not in terms of professional success. I would define it in terms of different forms of love, romantic love, uh, love for friends and family. Who do you love? Who loves you? Different, different forms of love. And if you've got a lot of love in your life and if you're giving a lot of love and if you're lucky enough to receive some love, then that to me is a successful life. Thank you so much, Angie, for joining us. It's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you for the second time, but very <laughs> worthwhile speaking to you again. Thank you so oh, much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on and the very best of luck to you for your undoubtedly very successful future. <laughs> Thank you.